You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Welcome to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR program produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Diaspora Blues also airs Tuesdays at 3.30pm on Radio Skid Row, a community radio station in Sydney. My name is Ayan Shirwa. Just a heads up, this week's episode contains discussions about birthing that might be distressing to some listeners. For crisis support, call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Has found that one in six women reported receiving uh, a type of mistreatment. For example, mm. loss of autonomy, being shouted at, scolded, threatened, being ignored, refused, uh, or receiving no response to requests for help. And that is Dr. Ruth De Souza, the host of the brilliant podcast, Birthing and Justice. We'll hear more from Dr. Ruth after this song. Determination 
Female-identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love come your way What can I say You feel the hell You change your way You're listening to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR radio program that also airs on Radio Skid Row, a community radio station in Sydney. Before the community announcement, we played a track by Liz Aku called Slowly. Most of us will agree that pregnancy should be a time of joy and rest. Yet, this isn't always the case for all expectant mothers. Unfortunately, race and class are still determining factors in the type of care women receive. Inequality coupled with unconscious bias often leads to black and racialized women receiving subpar treatment. This week on Diaspora Blues, Dr. Ruth DeSouza, the host of the podcast, Birthing and Justice, helps us understand the racial disparities in maternal care. Welcome to Diaspora Blues, Ruth. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So before we delve into your podcast, Birthing and Justice, let us get to know you first. 
Tell us about you and what drew you to community health. Oh, this is a big question. Um, I trained as a nurse in 1984. That's when I started nursing. And um, in my first year as a new graduate, what I realized was that the things that affect people outside of hospitals are very important in terms of their health. And in the community, you could make a big difference to people, not just in one moment in time in a hospital. So I became very excited about community health. And I was actually a community mental health nurse. Um, I worked in New Zealand and in England as a nurse, mainly as a psychiatric nurse. I worked in psychiatric hospitals. I also worked in the drug and alcohol field. So I worked in a methadone clinic, which was my very first job. And so for me, the community is really important. Seeing people in their homes is really important because it gives you a bit of an idea about the things that help or hinder their well-being. Yeah, well, um, it sounds like you have a vast experience in different spaces um, through the health space. What drew you specifically to birthing and justice? That's a great question, Flick. Um, I'd been working in mental health for many years as a community mental health nurse. And I started wondering about whether I could make a difference to people before um, they experience challenges in their life. And I kind of had this fantasy that um, birthing was this very beautiful place where everyone was happy and it was really special. And um, that's what drew me to birthing, that, that thought that I might be able to make a difference. And then what I found was I encountered a very kind of factory-like production model um, working in birth. So I was working on a postnatal ward and it was very much like a factory and, and the magic and specialness that I thought about birth were, were nowhere to be seen. All the kinds of dynamics of institutions, which can sometimes be quite cruel and quite uncaring, were very evident. And what I found were, was that they were very evident in terms of um, people of color. So I noticed that despite all the years of cultural safety education that had been part of my education, that had been part of nursing and midwifery education, there was lots of callousness and disregard for people of color, uh, indigenous people, but also new migrants. And mm. this was in 1994. And New Zealand had changed its uh, white migration policy, which was which was never articulated in the same way as the Australian one. But in 1987, New Zealand changed its migration policy to accept people from a range of host countries. Prior to that, they'd mainly selected people from very European and largely Anglo-Celtic countries. And so what had happened was we'd had a range of different uh, Asians in particular arriving in New Zealand. And the question that came into my mind is, how is cultural safety, which has been developed as something for Indigenous people, how is it actually playing out in this much more multicultural birthing space? Mm. Yeah, that's that shows um, a lot, like this longer history of medicalization of birthing and the pathologizing of 
the birthing process. Um, just kind of jumping ahead a little bit um, with the questions, how are racialized or black or people of color's bodies specifically pathologized in the health sector? Well, there's a lot to say about this. And, and also, I just want to correct an assumption that you have a little bit, which is around who supports birthing people in New Zealand. It's one mm -hmm. of the countries that's led the way in terms of autonomous midwifery practice. So I actually expected better of midwives. That's what I need to say here. You know, I, I and, and the thing about midwifery is it's an explicit critique of biomedicalization. So um, I was really surprised that midwives who'd already had this gender critique were not extending it more broadly. But um, in terms of more broad kind of conversations around how racialized bodies are treated, we know that pregnant people who are recent immigrants, indigenous and or disenfranchised by their lower socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, incarceration, substance dependence or housing instability all have an increased risk for poorer health outcomes and reduced mm -hmm. access to high quality care. Now, the thing that's important about that uh, is even though that's sort of a, a global, very general finding, uh, the Multicultural Center for Women's Health uh, produced a report that came out last week uh, about sexual and reproductive health. And what they found is, first of all, there's a lack of data on migrant mm -hmm. and refugee women's sexual and repro reproductive health. But the other evidence that we have, uh, you know, even though it's limited, is that they're less likely to have access to evidence-based and culturally relevant information, which will enable them to manage their own family contraceptive choices and menstrual health. Um, there's a few other findings that I'd like to flag as well. You know, they're less likely to participate in preventative health services. And mm. um, this is what I found in my own research around cervical cancer screening. They're also at greater risk of contracting sexually transmitted conditions, for example, HIV or hepatitis B. Uh, in terms of that birthing space, they tend to access antenatal care later and experience higher rates of stillbirth. Um, th there's a whole lot of kind of risk stuff. And I don't want to sound like, um, you know, that they are a deficit as a group. Like I think this is also related to how the um, gynecological and obstetric services are perceived by people from migrant and refugee backgrounds who might not know a lot about them or have um, poor mm -hmm. encounters with them and then don't come back. Uh, but we also know that they're more likely to experience perinatal mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the kind of work that I've done. So I set up a uh, what was called a maternal mental health team in Auckland in New Zealand. Um, and, and those things are also linked with social isolation, um, financial insecurity and migration related stresses. So that's a bit of a, a snapshot of kind of what the issues are. Mm. Um, and I, I guess just to pick up uh, some more on the question you asked about how black and other racialized bodies are pathologized in the health system, um, 
we know from a US study that one of my colleagues, who's a, an amazing nurse and associate professor in the US, uh, Monica McElmore, um, has found that one in six women reported receiving uh, a type of mistreatment, for example, mm. loss of autonomy, being shouted at, scolded, threatened, being ignored, refused, uh, or receiving no response to requests for help. So, you know, um, the, the people that were less likely to be mistreated uh, were those who are looked after by a midwife, uh, those who are white, those who'd had one or more babies already, and mm. those who are older than 30. But the rates of mistreatment for women of color or people of color uh, were consistently higher. And uh, so, for example, poor women, you know, mm -hmm. especially if we're thinking intersectionally, uh, poor women uh, had higher rates of reporting mistreatment. So 27% versus 18% of poor white women. Um, but regardless of maternal race, having a partner who was black also increased mm. reported mistreatment. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Dr. Ruth. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Today we're speaking to Dr. Ruth De Souza, the host of the eye-opening podcast, Birthing and Justice. I say eye-opening not as a throwaway comment, but because it really has broadened my understanding of the medical industry and its often hostile attitude to minoritized women. It's also introduced cultural birthing practices that I had never heard of, but have come to appreciate. We now return to the second half of our conversation with Dr. Ruth. I actually don't think we asked you about your podcast because I feel like we got so caught up in the conversations that the podcast does cover but tell us a bit about your podcast um what, what kind of conversations are you trying to start that's a great question so um I have been talking for years and years and years about racism and maternity I first started talking about it in 1994 so that's that's going a long way back mm. I've done millions of presentations like seriously so many I've written a lot, I've done a ton of research, and yet I still hear the same concerns, the same sadness, the same devastation that I heard in 1994 from birthing people of colour who have felt dismissed, uh, neglected, uncared for when they've accessed maternity services. And so I want to change the world of practice before I die, you know. And um, so I thought, how else can I access the hearts and minds of people and maybe mm -hmm. try and change practice in a way that's more accessible? And I really love podcasts. So whenever I'm, I'm doing a job, and especially during COVID, uh, if I'm doing a bit of gardening, if I've got 
jobs around the house, I listen to podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time, um, especially when I need a break from the screen. And I thought maybe podcasts are the way to go. Like maybe there's a way mm. to have great conversations with BIPOC, you know, and to talk to people who are birthing, but also the people that are involved in supporting birthing people and to really center the experiences of black indigenous and people of color mm. in the podcast so that our stories can be can be heard because so often it's um you know the white middle class cisgendered woman that's the the norm you know mm. And I, I mean, I've listened to all the episodes and I love hey, all the episodes, hooray. but there's one in particular that I'd love for you to kind of give us a snippet of the kind of conversations that you had. So it's episode three with Dr. Mimi Niles. So oh, that was an amazing, such episode. a great episode. Isn't she and, great? And I really love that you two use terms that aren't familiar with us and there wasn't any apology for using those terms I think mm. I think that was really well done so can we look at why hospitals are reluctant to I guess cater to cultural practices obviously these aren't cultural practices that harm the baby but for some reason they're kind of not willing to to make space for cultural mm. ways of birthing yeah so um, I've done a lot of work in this space, particularly around food, um, and I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. But I, I think one of the reasons is that hospitals and, and health services in general operate um, like a factory, and I use that mm. word very deliberately. So they rely on inputs that are the same um, so that they can process them as these inputs move through the factory, you know, the the birth factory and anyone who's different kind of clogs up the system do you know what I mean mm. so um, I remember when I was working on the postnatal ward um, that people used to get very offended if I wanted to microwave um, one of the special foods for people you know because in a lot of cultures we eat special food during our pregnancies and then after we've given birth because the body seen as needing special care right mm. and um you know there'd be all these colleagues who were at that time 99 white um who'd be like "Ooh, what's that smell do you have to micro mm. microwave that in the staff cafeteria you know the staff uh eating room and and part of the problem was structural there wasn't a place where patients or mm. birthing people could actually warm their own food up um and so it just sort of meant that you had to use this default, you know. Uh, I actually ended up in hospital a few years ago because I had a spider bite, would you believe? And my partner oh. brought me in all my meals because basically the only options were food that was beige and bland, you know. Oh. So, so I think sometimes um, supporting cultural practices is just seen as extra work for people. But, you know, in Aotearoa, what's happened is Māori have strongly advocated for family to be able to be present for as long as possible and as many as possible. And I love that because what that's done is it's meant that actually that opens the way for everyone else to have their family around them. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, I think the only inconvenience is when um, 
you know, a health professional that's trying to do their job and there are a lot of people in the way, in the way in inverted commas, right? I mean, I remember once giving, demonstrating a bird, uh, a baby bath. I was going to say a bird bath, a baby (laughs) bath, (laughs) demonstrating a baby bath. And there were 23 members of the family that were watching me, you know, and I was like, and and they were all Māori. And I was like, okay, I better be careful with this baby and better not drop this baby, you know. <laughs> um, but but I, I think what it does is it challenges the idea of liberal individualism, which is so central to Western biomedicine. You know, there, uh, as Flick, as you were saying earlier, you know, that, that kind of reductionism of um, just looking at parts of the body or at the individual rather than seeing the person in their context, you know, which is why I love community health you know because I love engaging family in conversations about health as well that's right because it seems the practice is trying to almost separate you know the 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 physiological from the emotional moral spiritual and all of that um, which kind of makes me think about this concept of cultural safety that you've been talking about Uh, How is that different to say cultural competence and why would you advocate for cultural safety more so? That's a fantastic question. So um, I think that there's what people do as health healthcare providers, right? And if they're competent, then the outcome, if they're good at their job, um, will be cultural safety. Now, we don't decide that we're culturally safe as healthcare providers. The recipient of care decides that. And so it's very consumer focused and it's very relational. And it also demands a critique of the institution and the culture of health. Now, there's a lot to unpack in what I've just said, but it's the idea of, of, of something that Ian asked earlier, you know, why can't we bring our whole selves as we are into health? Now, if we had a culturally safe health system, then we could. Then, you know, I could go in to a health service with my foods, um, you know, with my specific rituals, with my cultural mm-hmm. beliefs, uh, and be supported and nurtured to a good health outcome, right? But what we often find is that services can be very unsafe for people. So cultural safety comes from Māori nurses in New Zealand who said, hey, um, these institutions were not made with us in mind. They actually were built over our own traditional practices and beliefs. And, um, you know, we need things to change. And we need to acknowledge that colonization and racism have played a part in this. So it's an explicit critique of power, which I don't believe cultural competence has. And to me, the focus of cultural competence is kind of learning about the other. But cultural safety is really about looking at ourselves reflexively and trying to really untangle and unknow all our stereotypes all our baggage as health professionals and that was the lovely but also brainy dr ruth de souza dr ruth is the host of the podcast birthing and justice birthing and justice is available on all listening apps i can't stress this enough when i say please leave a review for the podcast the more people who review it, the larger the audience, which means it will actually reach the community who need to hear these kind of stories.
And that is all from us. Listen back to this episode and all of our previous episodes by going to 3cr.org.au slash Diaspora Blues. You can also follow us on Instagram if you like by going to 3cr.diaspora Blues. I'm Ayan Shirwa and I hope to see you next week. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is the 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.